Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, This evening we are continuing our study, these last four verses in this last chapter of 1 John. And I know that some of you are wondering if we're ever going to get finished with this. And I promise you that if nothing happens, and I'm here, and I should be next week, and there's no problems, that we will finish up our study in next Wednesday evening service. Uh, These last verses, though, are typical of the rest of this chapter. There are great truths here that stimulate our thinking, and I I do think it's worth time for us just to stay a while here and just get everything out of the Scriptures that we can before we finish up this study. Now, if you look in 1 John chapter 5 at verse number 18, it says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I know that you are very much aware by now what the operative word in the epistle of 1 John is. That is the word know. And John talks about what we know as Christians. What do we know as Christians? Do, do we have a, a, a faith that we can, we, be, we can be certain of? And are there elements of this faith that give us the confidence that we are in the right relationship with God. And does that faith do something for, for us? Does it give us something that others don't have? John uses this word no in a way that he refutes uh, counter false assumptions of Christ. He refutes the Gnostics who claimed that they knew Christ and yet possessed none of the characteristics that showed that they'd been changed by him. And the point here of our, mostly of our message here tonight will be this marked difference between those that are the children of God and those that don't know Christ as Savior. And that difference is accentuated by John's use of absolutes. On one side there is light and on the other side darkness. One side is true, the other is false. One is righteous and the other is unrighteous. And it's impossible for those two sides to mix. And each of those is uncharacteristic of the other. Uh, Christ and his followers are on one side and Satan and his followers are on the other. And John just very simply says to us here, we know the difference between the two. We know that we are of God and we know that the rest of the world lies in wickedness. So we're going to talk about that tonight, and then next week we will finish up our study of this epistle. And our subject is absolutes that we affirm. Let me give you the first point of our outline uh, that we've studied the last couple of weeks. We affirm the source of our security. We affirm that we are the children of God, that we have been born of God, that the source of our ability... And our holiness and our righteousness is God. And it's God who continues to work in us to enable us to stop sinning and to live according to his commandments. 
Everything that we have comes from God. Every ability that we have comes from God. And it's God who is this one that makes this radical change in our lives to make us different from what we were before. This happens in regeneration. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes into us and we have been regenerated and we receive Christ as Savior, then he will always continue to live his life in us. Now, because of that, we know that sin is terribly inconsistent with our new life. If Christ is in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, then we do know that his life will work out of us because one that's been born of God will continue to live in the, in the commandments of God. We will not live lives of sin because it's God's purpose to conform us to the image of Christ. It's God's purpose to change us from our natural disposition of disobedience to a person that truly desires to to follow the Lord and keep his commandments. And I'm sure that you recognize that as a summation of the main purpose of the epistle. Uh, In the first chapter, the tone was set there when John said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And the rest of the epistle in some way relates to that statement it's, it's a refutation of those that claim to know Christ, and yet they've never shown any evidence of his character. And after reaching the end of the epistle, we are aware of John's method. He's going to build on this argument. He's going to bring us to the point of the assurance of our salvation. We know that we are born of God, and because of that, the desire to sin has been squelched. Our desire to obey God has been accentuated. And so we truly are different people than what we were before. And if that difference is not evident, then we also know this, that we have not been truly born of God. And I think that that's a a very important topic in the New Testament. I think it's something that there are many Christians that look over that. They don't think very much about it, at least people that claim to know Christ. And I've heard some people say that there are far more Christians than we actually realize that someday we're going to be pleasantly surprised that there were so many people that we didn't think were Christians and there actually are believers, but they've been just sort of flying under the radar. They've just been kind of skimming along in their Christian lives, but they're saved. They're Christians. They may not show it. Uh, They're carnal Christians. That's the way some people describe them, but they're Christians nonetheless. But I don't see that in the New Testament. What I see is that there are many people that claim Christianity but they aren't Christian. They are, there are no fruits of Christianity in their life. And I think that rather than finding out later that there are many people that uh, we thought weren't Christians and they are Christians, I think instead we're going to find that there are many Christians what said they were Christians and we may have thought they were Christians, but they really aren't. That they really don't have Christ as their Savior. They claim to know him, but he doesn't claim to know them. And I think that's the teaching of the New Testament rather than the other. And this is why Jesus says that many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So I think it's possible that there are, could be members of Brian Baptist Church that have walked the aisle. They've been into the baptistry. They said that they were saved, and they're really not. Uh, they they never placed their faith in Christ. They placed their faith in this aisle they walked or in the water that they got dunked in. And uh, they're not really Christians. And you say, well, who are those people? Can you name them for us? And I would say, no, I can't. 
because I know that there are tares that grow up among the wheat. It's hard to identify them and only many times and only God knows what's really in their heart. But so I see much more evidence that the New Testament teaches that there's this huge problem of false professions rather than a huge contingent of secret Christians. There are just many people that say that they know Christ, but they don't know him. And we can't really, in some ways, we can't judge them, but there are certain things that we look at. Uh, we, we, Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. That's the only biblical response we can give to it. We just look at the fruit, and if there's enough there that uh, would indicate that they're Christians, then we say that they are, and if there, if there isn't, I think we're safe in saying that they aren't. And so if that person fails, if he falters, If he doesn't continue in the faith, then I think that we're better off to assume that these people are not Christians and uh, they're not backslidden Christians. And uh, I talked about that a little bit last week, how that there are some people take comfort somehow that they're just backslidden Christians. The Bible never tells us to take any comfort like that. We take our comfort and our confidence from the fruit that we have in our life, from the, from the spiritual fruits that, that are produced there. We take our confidence in that we steadfastly continue in the faith. Falling is inconsistent with the faith. And that is just the consistent teaching that we have here in 1 John. God's people do not continue in sin, they don't fall away from the faith, and they don't leave and never return. So falling is inconsistent with faith, apostasy is inconsistent with faith. And last week we looked at some of the scriptural proofs that we are kept by God. And I think that that translates into a steadfast continuance in the faith. And I think it points to a person that takes up his cross and follows Jesus rather than somebody who lives in constant defeat and is always having trouble sticking to the narrow way. And then I can warn you about this as well, that there are some folks that are really teary-eyed and and they come and they say, just pray for my loved ones, pray for that, that, that they'll be saved. And that very same person that comes and sticks in that prayer request is one that drags the name of Jesus through the, through the mud all week long, lives like the devil all week long on a consistent basis. And while we're praying for their friends and they ask us to pray, they're the ones that are the biggest hindrance to their salvation. People look at their lives, their, their friends, their relatives. They know what they are, uh, probably a lot better than we do. They know what they, what, they, know what they are. And, and so they're the hindrance to them. Now, here, here's something about this. Three hours with the preacher a week and with the church or less may not be enough to offset 165 other hours that person spends with you. Just be, be aware of that. So John says, we know we are born of God and therefore we know that we are secure in him. And verse number 18 points that out. Now, in the first message, we looked at two possibilities of interpretation of verse number 18 and whether John is speaking of the preservation of Christ uh, in our salvation or whether he's talking about the perseverance uh, of the Christian himself, his steadfast continuance, uh, whichever one that he's talking about or both, it really doesn't matter because both of them have the same result and both of them have the same source. So we look over these things, and I know that uh, this is repetition from last week. It's repetition from our previous studies, but this is what the New Testament is. It's a constant repetition of the things that God wants us to know, a continual emphasis, especially on doctrine such as this, so that, that, that we know and we can affirm that we are in the faith. And unless we get that, 
Unless we understand that, nothing else matters. Now, we're going to move on then into verse number 19. John says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So number two is that we affirm the relationship of the redeemed. And we know that we are of God. Now I want you to look at this verse, uh, verse number 19, and you ought to see something very familiar about this. Uh, And I mean something familiar about the construction of it. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You should be able to see there that that is the same classic dichotomy that we find throughout the epistle. It's the same light and darkness contrast that I mentioned just a moment ago. And that's always in the scripture. There is no middle ground here. Uh, when, when it comes to Jesus, you can't sit on the fence. You can't say, well, I haven't made up my mind about it, or I'm not quite sure about this. Because Jesus said, either you are for me or you are against me. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. And here, the way John states it, you are either of God or you are of the devil. Now, before we get into the explanation of this verse, it is helpful for us to understand what is being said here. And theologians agree on this last half of the verse that this is personal. That instead of the whole world lieth in wickedness, it's the whole world lieth in the wicked one. Wickedness here means the wicked one, or in other words, he's talking about Satan. Now, we are Christians, and we are of God, and the other side of this is the world. They're the non-Christians, and they are of Satan. Now, you can see that this is another one of those, those places that the King James Version is a little bit harder for us to understand than the newer versions, and, uh, and the newer versions give us this explanation of the wicked one. Now, does that mean that the King James is wrong and the others are right? Well, no, there's no practical difference between these two. The text hasn't been violated. All that's happened here is it's been expressed in a little bit clearer manner. And again, I, I want to bring this up because I think it's something that we all do need to understand that there are many people among Baptists and others and and in the fundamentalist movement that have been led astray to think that there is no word in the King James translation that you can tamper with because the translation is inspired. Now, we need to think about that for just a moment because if the King James is in some otherworldly class, then what about all the centuries before? I mean, did those that use Wycliffe's translation or or Tyndale's or Coverdale's translation or or those that use the Geneva Bible, like the pilgrims, did they not have the Word of God? I mean, did God just leave out all of these people to have an accurate translation of his Word? And that's why we can't elevate the King James to a place of divine inspiration. Now, it's also why we say that the Bible was inspired in its original autographs. We definitely do believe that, but translations aren't inspired. And we have a very good translation in the King James, one I think, in fact, is the best translation of all. But when you clarify a verse like 1 John 5.18 by calling, saying here, the wicked one, rather than lieth in wickedness, that is not an assault on the King James, and it's not an attack on the inspiration of Scripture. So hopefully we'll understand this, that the whole world lieth in wickedness and the whole world lies in the wicked one is a, is a, a difference without a distinction. Now, unfortunately, those are fighting words for a lot of people, and they'll just tell you that you are a rank heretic if you try to change any of the words that are here. And these are the same people that regularly use different words to explain the text rather than leaving it just as it is. Well, now that we know this, 
we can move on to the main points of discussion. Uh, We affirm that we are born of God, which tells us, first of all, that disciples are different. And hopefully that's already self-evident as we've gone through this study. We can't have missed this because there must be a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world or else we wouldn't know who's supposed to be a part of the church and who isn't. And this would have been a moot point of discussion for the entire epistle if there isn't a difference between these two. And so why does John state that here? Why, when it seems to be such an anticlimactic statement at this point, is John stating the obvious? Well, I think that you'll better understand that. He's not stating the obvious when we get down to verse number 21 where he says, "'Little children, keep yourselves from idols.'" And that has some bearing on the understanding of this verse, and we'll get to that uh, in the next lesson. So how is it that we who are the children of God are different from the world? Well, the answer to that question is found in the meaning of Christian. What does it take to make a Christian? Is it his morality? Is it his noble ideas? Is it the fact that he's religious? And I would submit to you that there are many, many people uh, in the world that are religious, many people that are moral, many people that are good humanitarians. Uh, Probably we can find right here in our neighborhood some good, fine, upstanding members of the community that they're against many of the things that we're against and for many of the things that we're for. We'll find people here that that, uh, stand against indecency and things like pornography. There are people that vote with a conscience. They have these great lofty ideals about the humanitarianism. They'll come here when we have a blood drive. They'll hand out a few dollars to somebody who's panhandling on the street and try to help them. And then there are also people that are very devout to their church. They attend church. They, uh, they support their church with their tithes and their offerings. They're very faithful about that. In fact, you can just go down a few blocks down the street here to the Mormon church and you'll find all of those things there. So there has to be something more behind this statement that we are of God and being a Christian is not quite as obvious as it seems. Now, how do I know something like that? Well, I know it for, well, there's one big reason right now because right now we have a debate in our country over the candidacy of Mitt Romney and there are people that say that he is a Christian and there are many Orthodox church leaders that that say that Mitt Romney is a Christian. Joel Osteen, who uh, must be totally clueless about what Mormons believe or totally clueless about what Christians are, probably both, I think, but he says Mormons are Christians. And what does he base his assessment on? I can only assume that he bases it on their morality, on lofty ideas, on humanitarianism, as I mentioned, devotion to the church, and even the fact that they say, well, yes, we believe in Christ, we believe as our Savior. But what is it that makes a person a Christian? Well, the answer is right here in this text. We are of God. We're no longer in the clutches of Satan. And we have to have a right understanding of this, that every person that comes into the world, every person that's born, is born into the grasp of Satan. And so what is it that makes a Christian? Well, let me give you some identifying marks here. The first one is that we have been delivered by God. A Christian is one who has been delivered. We were held captive in Satan's dominion. And I don't mean in the sense that we were struggling to free ourselves from him. We were willing captives. And I don't want to get ahead of our next point here, letter B, but we're not struggling to free ourselves from Satan, or we weren't. 
We were held captive by him, but we weren't even aware of it. We weren't even aware that there was a problem or that we needed to be set free. But what God has done, he comes and he peels back those blinders like a knight in shining armor. He comes and he delivers us from this dominion of Satan, this stranglehold that he has on us. The Apostle Paul stated it this way in Colossians, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Charles Wesley expressed it well in his hymn, Hand Can It Be. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Peter said in a passage that we read this past Sunday morning, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." So that's first. A Christian is one that has been delivered by God. We've been set free from sin. And in that sense, we state what it means to be a Christian in a negative way, from a negative standpoint. We were imprisoned. We were shackled. We were in the dungeon of sin, and God delivered us from it. Then what else is it that makes a Christian? Well, secondly, we are directed by God. And that's the positive aspect of being of God. Our lives have been set on a new course. We were on this broad road of destruction, and uh, now we have entered into the straight gate, the one that leads to eternal life. Now we have been enabled to live for Christ. And since we have received life in him by being born again, there's never a time where we stop receiving that life from God. Peter says... In Second Peter, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." So you have this positive course of the Christian life. That, that's the direction that we're headed in. It's God that orders that course. And we live by that. We don't have any trouble with it. Well, we're not trying to, to be resistant to God's leadership. For whenever we try to make ourselves do rightly, do the right thing, then uh, we, we would have to force ourselves to do it. Or if we did do it, our motive was self. But now that God is directing... He guides us into paths that glorify him. David said, He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, it's interesting that David put that first. Now, most of you know that that comes from the 23rd Psalm, and the conclusion of the 23rd Psalm is that we have happiness dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. It's deliverance from enemies. This is what the psalm is about. And you know how David says that we get there? He, he puts this verse, we are led in paths that glorify God. You know how sad that is that most churches, most people that say that they're Christians miss this? 
Their, their goal is not being led in paths by God where he wants to go. But now we have this new theology that has replaced what, we've, what people have believed for centuries, and that is that the, the, the way that God wants to lead us is into material wealth. And God will lead us into happiness, and God will lead us into good health plans and all the comforts of life. And these people aren't interested in the path that Jesus has chosen. Paul said that we have been appointed to suffering. Uh, Jesus said that, that persecution and hardship, suffering and toil would be the lot for the Christian. So his path is one of self-denial. His path is not one of trying to gain riches for ourselves. His path is the path of the cross. But most people posit a much different Christianity than that. They have a different path that they want to walk, and it's evident that they're not of God because God doesn't lead in the kind of path that they want to walk. Here's something. You cannot judge Christianity by worldly success. That's That's not the judgment of it. And those that make those kinds of things their goal are not of God. Christians are those that have surrendered to God's government. There was a way that seems right to a man, but we've abandoned that. We've abandoned all human reasoning. We're not dictated to by fleshly desires, but we are directed by God. Then thirdly, what is it that makes a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who desires God. We desire him. We live for him. We actively pursue him. Think about it. Why are you here on Wednesday night? You know, it feels so much better to go home after a hard day's work and prop your feet up on the footstool, take your shoes off, turn on the television, throw your mind out of gear, and just let it all hang out. It's so much easier to do that. But why are you here? Why, why did you come here tonight? You know, Jesus had an answer for that. You know what he called it? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You want to know more about God. You want to know more about these scriptures that we're studying here tonight. You want something that's going to help you to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. And so uh, if you're not thinking about things like that, people that don't think about the Lord really don't have much desire for him. You know, when when I'm sick, and and I rarely miss church services for sickness, but whenever I've been in the hospital, you know, I've had those stent procedures and, and problems with my back where I've been in hospital for several days. Do you know what I'm thinking about while I'm there? What's going on at church? Well, what's, what's going on in the services at church? What am I missing there? See, I, I couldn't stay home on Sunday night. I couldn't stay home on a Wednesday night. I can't do that. I'm not built that way. That's just too unnatural for me. I, I need to be in church because I know that my place is with God's people. And this is where I want to be. This is where I'd rather be. You know, I was thinking about some folks that I know, and really I'm talking about people that are in my own family. And um, they started attending, well, one particular church that I have in mind, that they started attending a church where uh, this church says that it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. And uh, some of the people in my family went along with that. And I wondered about that. After all this teaching that they'd been through their entire lives, how did they ever arrive at a position like that? Is it because they desire God? Is it because they want to get closer to the Lord? This is something that's going to make them more like Christ? And some of them have just, they've just revel in this newfound freedom that they have that they can live like the world. I don't understand that. Because I thought that a Christian was one that desires God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, 
The principle that is governing the world is self-centeredness, selfishness, and self-seeking. To be of God, therefore, obviously means that we no longer live for self or Satan, but we live for God. And our supreme desire is to please him. We are of God. That's our party. That's our interest. He is our father. And you know, you can say that two ways. You can say, we live for God. Or you can say, we live for God. Which is that for you? No, when you live for God, maybe you're just trying to prove to somebody else that you're a Christian. But what about if you live for God? And that means that God is everything to you. God is everything to you. I mean, he consumes your life. That's living for God. Well, fourthly, what is a Christian? Christians are people that are destined for God. It's what a Christian is. He's someone who is destined for God. In other words, the Christian is on his way to return to God. Now, in the past, we were predestined by God, and now in the present, we are destined for him. We're being now conformed to the image of Christ. We're being sanctified. Now, have you ever thought about the reason, why are you being sanctified? You may be able to come up with several reasons for that. But when I think about why are we being sanctified, I think of it this way, that we are because we are already citizens of heaven. Right now, we're citizens of heaven. And we're citizens of this different country, and citizens of that country have to be a certain way. And there's criteria that has to be met for citizens of that country. And so we're being sanctified to be citizens of that country or like citizens there. And if we're not, then we're not God's people. We're headed for this heavenly country and we have to be fit to live there. And God starts that process right now. And that's because he's given us our citizenship up front. You don't get your papers to get into heaven when you get there. I mean, you're already signed, sealed, approved right now. If you have your faith in Jesus Christ, he's already given you the citizenship. You've got your passport. You're going to be able to get into heaven. Scripture says that we belong to God. Revelation says that God will put his name in our foreheads. We don't belong to us. We belong to him. We're not the devil's property anymore. That's what a Christian is. We are of God. We've been delivered from the kingdom of Satan by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are directed by God to walk in paths of righteousness. And we desire to do that because our greatest happiness is in pleasing the Lord. And then we're also destined for life everlasting in his kingdom. Now let's take a moment to quickly look at the second half of this statement. And the whole world lieth in wickedness, or the whole world lies in the wicked one. And your last point there is that the doomed are deceived. And that's the real problem of people that are in the clutches of the devil. They are deceived. And that's why they're not fighting to get out of his kingdom. You see, what would you do if you really thought that when you close your eyes in death and you open them, that the next thing that you're going to see are the fires of hell? What would you do? Well, I think that we would probably be kicking and screaming. We'd be climbing the walls trying to get out of this prison. We would do everything that we could to break those shackles that bind us. But is that what people are doing? When you drove into the church tonight through the neighborhood, were there people yelling out their windows, come and help us, come and save us, we're dying, we're going to hell. Can you please help us? No. In fact, we had a sign out front once uh, said something about hell warning people about hell and we got calls from the neighborhood 
that said, you shouldn't do that. It's wrong to tell people that they're going to die and go to hell. So no, they, they, the people out there are not trying to beat the door down to get in. There's not an assault on this church building and people breaking down the doors can't wait to get in to hear about Jesus. Are the seats filled up tonight with lost sinners that are writhing in the agony and the pain of their sin? No, it's not even filled up with Christians. You know, that's a problem. If the, if the people that can see and they're supposed to be grateful to God for their salvation don't come, what makes you think the blind are ever going to come? I like what Stephen Cole said about this. He said in 519, John describes the whole world as lying in the power or arms of the evil one. The picture is not of frantic captives desperately trying to escape this depraved tyrant. Rather, they lie quietly in his evil clutches, oblivious to their tragic plight. The God of this world has blinded their minds, 2 Corinthians 4.4. They can wear life is good t-shirts oblivious that they're wandering perilously close to the edge of the abyss. They don't realize that in due time their foot will slip, Deuteronomy 32:35, and they will face God in judgment. Rather, they are sleeping peacefully in the arms of the evil one who will destroy them. It sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? The doomed are deceived. And so what they're doing, they're skipping along, dancing along this broad path that leads to destruction, And one day they're going to come to the end of that path and they're going to fall off the edge of the cliff. And like lemmings, all the rest are going to follow behind them because they've been deceived. They think Satan has something better for them. They think that Satan cares about them, that their life is good the way that it is. And someday they're going to come to the end of that path and find out there is no good that comes from it at all. So that's a tragedy, isn't it? People aren't knocking down the doors of the church and trying to get in. Instead, what we find is opposition to the gospel. We find people that want to shutter the doors of the church lest somebody else should get in. It happens all the time. So they're deceived. People are deceived by the one who holds them in this, in this uh, blackened pit of sin and misery. So I like Cole's description. He throws in a little bit of Jonathan Edwards here. They don't realize that in due time their foot will slip. And that comes from Deuteronomy 32:35, which was Jonathan Edwards' text in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, I'm going to stop with that. Uh, we affirm the relationship of the redeemed. We are no longer of the world. We are of God. This is a whole new, different life that we're living It's built upon better promises, and we are sure of the one that we have trusted. We're sure of the the heavenly home that he's prepared for us. We are not deceived. Next time, we're going to expand a little bit on that thought as we look into our last lesson on 1 John. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and just this opportunity that we have to be here tonight. And Lord, um, we, we pray that the, the gospel will go out from here and that people will realize their, their lost condition, how they need to come to you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, use our people to reach others, that you'd stir up the membership of Brian Baptist Church, realizing that we are a different people. We have different expectations and we have a different citizenship and help us to live as citizens of that heavenly country. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.